Lord, we thank You for this precious time to remember You and to worship You and to do as You have commanded. I pray this morning, Lord, that You would open up the eyes of our heart that we might receive from You. And we ask all these things according to Your riches and glory through the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Chasing the Giants is actually the title this morning. I recognize there was a movie out called Facing the Giants, but I put a little bit different twist on that this morning because in life we always have three opportunities to handle situations. The real truth of it is is that we can run away from the situation, we can stand still, or we can chase it. You know, when it's a sin issue, we need to get away from it, whether it be an addiction or pornography, alcohol or drugs, whatever that addiction or whatever uh, that, um, that sin might be. We, we, uh, if we struggle or if we see it, if it comes knocking on our door, we want to get away and we want to get support. But when it is a situation such as a tragedy or a suffering, it's not really a good option to simply run away from it. We have to face it. We have to deal with it. And, in some sense, and at some point we have to even embrace the reality of what has occurred and embrace what God will want us to learn and glean from it. And then there are those times when opportunities that maybe look like giants come our way that we, quite frankly, need to chase. We need to be proactive to reach out and take it by the hands and to take it by the horns, so to speak. I remember when I was growing up, my dad, his favorite thing to do in life was to hog hunt. Except it really wasn't hunting, it was really hog catching, okay? And uh, as a matter of fact, sometimes when I share this story, people just don't believe me, and, and that's fine. I wouldn't believe it myself if I hadn't grown up doing it. But... Nevertheless, here's the principle. Here's how it works. He would have some dogs. He called them Catahoula Cur dogs. And uh, he had them trained. And there were wild hogs not far from where we lived. Matter of fact, sometimes they'd be literally out in our backyard. And uh, they, were, they would be in the swamps. They would be in the woods. And uh, my dad would go out with a rope and, and, dog, and a couple of dogs. And maybe a knife. And sometimes he would somehow manage to get me to go with him, usually when I didn't have a choice. And I, I would go with him, and we would go. And these hogs would be anywhere from 20 pounds to 220 pounds. And uh, he's got marks all over his body where they have gotten him before. They never got me, but they got him. And here's what would happen. We'd be out there, and we'd be going through the woods, and the dogs would start barking and yelling. And he'd go, run, run, get them. So here I am running with this rope. Maybe a knife, and I'm thinking, I don't really want to get this hog, you know what I mean? But I have a greater fear of my father than I do of that hog, so I'm running. And I am running toward the giant of my life at that moment, so to speak. And when I'd get there, sure enough, the dogs would have him bait up against a tree or in a, in a creek bed somewhere, and um, they would have him cornered. And I'd do what any normal person would do. I'd wait till my dad got there. And then, uh, then I would attempt to throw the rope on him, or I'd give it to my dad, and he would throw the rope, and he would finally catch that hog. And then one of us, would, my, one of, either me or one of my brothers, would run up and catch it behind the legs and tie it up with some hay string. 
And then we'd drag it out to a clearing if we had a horse there, or we'd drag it out as far as we could to where the truck could get there, or if possible, even all the way to the house. And then we'd put them in a pit and fatten them up. And then the next course of action would occur at some point. We'd sell him or, or, or you know, he would, he would become breakfast, whatever the choice was at that point. But, uh, you know, it's really interesting to me as I was thinking about this lesson because that's really the choice that I, you know, you had three choices. You can run, you can stay still, or you can chase. That, those were the opportunities in that situation and because I had a great fear for my dad, I always chased. The same thing is true today. When we look at the life of David, and we're going to look at it in just a moment here in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 17, uh, you see David, and you'll see the proactive language of how he would pursue the giant. He would pursue a specific giant, but you even see uh, the, the, the fact that he was not willing to run even from the lion or the bear. Now, I, I do want to differentiate just for a, for a moment today. I am not giving this lesson so that we can pursue the lust of the flesh. Okay, so that's not the point of this lesson. You know, that's exactly what I've been thinking. I need to play the lottery more, and, and I need to put more money. I need to take some risks. That is not what I'm talking about today, okay? That is called pursuing the lust of the flesh, all right? That, that's what that is, all right? And uh, so that's not, it's not a big message to get you to try to take big financial risks to get rich quick. All right? So that's not where we're going. We're talking about what I call divine opportunities that God puts before us. That we may be afraid of. That we may think, I just want to stand still. I want to wait and see what happens later on. That's what I'm talking about today. And as we look at the life of David... You know, something always perplexed me as I was growing up. You know, you'd always hear it mentioned David because of the scriptures. It was a man after God's own heart. But yet I get stuck in the fact that I was thinking, yeah, but David's that guy that committed adultery and then had the guy murdered. Like, how do we take care of that, by the way? And that always bothered me. I'm just thinking, I don't get this. And a lot of that is also because I had the mentality that, Active spirituality, following Jesus, had more to do with what I did not do than what I actually did. We still deal with that today. Some people think, well, this is what a good Christian is. It's someone who doesn't drink and doesn't, doesn't smoke and doesn't chew and doesn't marry someone who does. That's what a good Christian is. Somehow we think it's all the things that you don't do makes you godly. And let me say this, I think it's important, according to James 1.27, that we should keep ourselves pure and blameless. So I am not degrading that, but I'm saying I don't know that God's overly impressed with the things that we don't do. I don't think God in heaven looks down and goes, you know, that Johnny, he just never does anything. I mean, he's really good. He doesn't do anything. I'm really impressed with that. I don't think God does that. I don't think the world looks at us and goes, you know, they go to church and they do nothing. I don't, think, I don't think anybody's impressed by that. Maybe us. And half the time we're mad because someone else is doing it and we don't get to. I mean, that's the whole mentality a lot of Christians have anyway. You know, we're just kind of ticked off. I can't believe it. Because it's, you know, because we start basing our faith on what we don't do. And if you measure David by that measure, he's a moral and wretched failure. But when you begin to recognize the steps of faith the man took, when you begin to see what he did do, 
And when he did mess up, he was repentant. And he did uh, confess eventually before God his wrongs. And he did pour out his heart and learn from them and gave us some beautiful psalms, in particular Psalm 51. I think God looked at the heart of David and saw what he was willing to do and what he did take risk to do. And I think that's why he can be called a man after God's own heart. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning with verse 32. You know the story. You know, here's David. He's a young teenager, probably 15, 16, 17 years of age at the most. His brothers have gone to battle against the Philistines who have come and oppressed the Hebrew people. And his father has sent him with some food to the commanding officer and to his brothers. And when he gets there, he notices this giant named Goliath mocking and profaning the God of Israel. And he hears this and he goes, why didn't someone do something? And then he says to Saul right here, in verse 32 of chapter 17, he said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on the count of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul replied, You're not able to go against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy, and he's been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion... Or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock. I went after it. When, when the lion and the bear came in, I proactively went after it. And struck it. And rescued the sheep from his mouth. You know, it's interesting. David probably had started off with something small. I mean, he probably started off as a small boy with ants and learned, you know what? I, I, they may bite me, but I'll, I can take care of ants and then I can take care of bees. And maybe there were coyotes. He's out in the, he's out in the field and he'd become proficient with his slingshot. And if you'll notice the term there, it says um, that when they would come, he would strike them. Uh, he would strike them. And so... He had become proficient enough that he would throw that rock with such velocity and accuracy that he could hit him exactly where he needed to. And it came from days and days of practice and because he had a fear of the Lord. He knew he was where he was supposed to be. He knew he was doing what he was supposed to be doing. And again, here's a man who's measured by what he is doing, not by what he's not doing. So he's gleaned and gained an amount of faith an amount of might to face giants, but even take it another step and chase the giants. He says, I went after it and I struck it and rescued it from the sheep's mouth. When it turned on me, now I struck it at first, but when it turned on me, he said, I seized it by the hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. There is purpose. Now, David didn't just go around looking for a fight. He didn't just go around looking for someone big to knock down. There was a purpose. There was a reason. And it was because, first of all, you see the aggression that is taken toward him. But he's ready to seize the day. He's ready to seize the opportunity He's ready to defend his flock and his nation and his God. Your servant has killed the lion and it's the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. 
Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. David had learned to fear God and not fear the circumstances that would come his way. And it, and it wasn't a situation where they weren't difficult. It wasn't a situation where sometimes he might not have even uh, been completely safe. But he had learned to trust God. He had learned to face the fears and when necessary, chase the fears or chase the giants, so to speak. Now, how did he do that? Well, because I believe God always gives us smaller opportunities to prepare us for the bigger opportunities that are coming in life. And again, it wasn't the first day he was out there that he encountered a bear. He had probably encountered numerous animals and numerous situations. It wasn't the first day he encountered a lion. And it, when he faced Goliath, he had a pretty good list of things that he had already overcome. He walked in with faith and confidence of what God could do because he believed he was right and he believed he was in the righteousness of God. Now, I want you to see what an impact that makes in just a moment on another guy. You've got a whole army who's afraid to go out and fight Goliath. But then you go to the end of David's reign, and we're going to look there a whole list of mighty men, but we're just going to look at one real briefly named Benaniah, who's willing now to face some of the same odds David had done. You know, a lot of times, we, uh, with our children and even ourselves, we basically learn fears. The real truth of it is psychologists tell us there are only two in eight fears that we all have. The first one is the fear of falling. We all have, are born with a fear of falling. And then we're also born with a fear of loud noises. Every other fear, we learn. Someone tells us or teaches us to be afraid or we have a negative encounter. So what we do is we try to shield ourselves from ever being a part of anything like that again. Whether it be claustrophobia, it's a learn phobia in which we're afraid of small phases, acrophobia, fear of spiders, so many other phobias, even technophobia, I'm afraid of technology or computers especially, nomophobia, I'm afraid of being out of cell phone range. That's a real fear, by the way. It's listed. <laughs> Glossophobia, I'm afraid of public speaking. Photophobia, I'm afraid of bright lights. And the list goes on and on and on because we had a bad experience at some point or someone told us you need to be afraid of the dark. You know, it's just like our children. We understand that with water. First of all, we want our kids to have a healthy fear of the water. So at some point, our kids get water over their face. And then they're typically, naturally, and, and probably a good thing, they're, they're kind of afraid of the water. But we, want, we don't want them to live there, so what do we do? We get them to start in just a little shallow water, and we walk out there with them, and they get a little further and further, and this may be a, over a period of multiple times, and then we get it up to their head, and then we're holding them, and at some point we say, come to me, jump to me, and we just take steps to overcome that fear, and eventually they're able to swim. And how have you dealt with that fear? Well, the real truth of it is you've embraced it. In a sense, you've chased it. You didn't run away from it. That's right. Never go near water ever again. Don't touch water. And, or we don't just say, well, yeah, there's water there, but if you're going to deal with it, just jump in there and deal with it on your own. No, we help them to embrace it. In a sense, we help them to chase that giant. The same is true 
in our lives with most of the fears that we encounter, with most of the circumstances we encounter. If we're not careful, in a sense, we dumb our children down by trying to overly protect them from anything and try to start living life for them and doing everything for them. It's interesting, Charles Sykes wrote a book and he said, rules children should learn before they can really become adults. And I think it's very pertinent for today. The first lesson he says kids ought to learn before they can become adults is this. Life is not fair, so get used to it. Number two, the world won't care about your self-esteem. The world will expect you to accomplish something before you feel good about yourself. Number three, you will not make $40,000 a year right out of high school. And you won't be vice president with a car phone, with a cell phone, until you earn both. Number four, you think your teacher's tough, wait till you get a boss. <clears throat> Number five, flipping burgers is not beneath your dignity. Your grandparents had another word for burger flipping. They called it opportunity. Number six, if you mess up, it's not your parents' fault, so don't whine about it. Learn from your mistakes. Number seven, before you were born, your parents weren't as boring as they are now. They got that way by paying your bills and cleaning your room and listening. You tell them how cool you are. So before you save the rainforest from the blood-sucking parasites of your parents' generation, try cleaning your own closet first. Number eight, your school may have done away with winners and losers, but life has not. In some schools, they've abolished failing grades, and they'll give you as many times as necessary to get the right answers. This, of course, does not bear the slightest resemblance to anything in real life. Number nine, life is not divided into semesters. You don't get the summers off, and very few employees are interested in you finding yourself. Do that on your own time. Number ten, television is not real life. In real life, people actually have to leave the coffee shop and go to work. And number 11, be nice to nerds. Chances are you'll end up working for one. It's the MIT fight song, isn't it? Uh, when, when, athletic, when athletics start going poorly at MIT, that's, okay, that's all right, that's okay. You're going to work for us one day. So. so a mighty man of God. Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 20. Short. So it's not a passage that you would necessarily ever remember. Benaniah, he's a valiant fighter from Kabzil who performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men. So two men, he encountered them somehow. We don't know if this was in war or how it occurred, but two men from Moab, which was one of the nemesis of the Hebrew children, the Moabites, and he killed two of them. And then it's not, not just from there. He continues, he said, and then he went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. Somehow, uh, he encountered a lion, he saw a lion, and we don't know if this was for the purpose uh, of protecting his family, his crops, his men, uh, or he was hungry. But he goes into a pit, he chases a lion into a pit on a snowy day. Think about that for just a moment. And remember, they didn't have guns back then. So at best, he's going with a bow and arrow. And remember, you don't get like multiple rounds. You shoot, you shoot the, the lion and he's probably still alive. So you talk about some moxie. This guy had some moxie. He continues on and then he struck down a huge Egyptian. And we have another account of this that, that seems to indicate that he was somewhere between seven and nine foot tall. Here's a giant. I wonder where... He learned to overcome that fear. I wonder what inspired him to come to the point to where he would engage in combat with two men. Well, that's, that's understandable. But then that he would chase a lion 
and then he would take on a giant. Remember the story of David, how David had taken on the bear, the lion, and then the giant. That story was recorded and told multiple times over. It had an effect, and it was an inspiring act upon Ben and I, I'm certain. It says here that after he struck down the Egyptian, although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Ben and I went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand, and he killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits of Benaniah. He, too, was as famous as the three mighty men. He was held in great honor. Uh, he was held in the same great honor that any, more than any of the 30, but he was not included among the three. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. Charge of his bodyguard, and later on even becomes basically the commander of the army. How did, how did he get that position? You know, it's not like he had probably, you know, because he graduated from the school of Jerusalem or he read uh, some good books on fighting. The real truth of it is, is that Benaniah took some risk at divine opportunities. He was willing to take a stand and he was willing to take a risk when necessary. Again, we don't see him fulfilling unnecessary risk. Risk that would only personally benefit him. Same thing is true with David. But we see them as men who are willing to take a step. A men who are willing to take a risk for the kingdom and the kingdom's sake. They were men who knew God, number one. Number two, they were men who were good stewards of what gifts and abilities and talents that God had given them. And number three, they were men who were willing to seize the opportunity. Mighty men. Men that God is still calling today. The man and the woman that God still desires for us to be today. Because the real truth of it is, a lot of our sin is not commission today. It's still omission. It's omitting or being unwilling to embrace the opportunities that God has given us. Can I tell you this? God is going to give us some opportunities in the days ahead. Matter of fact, as an elder board, we met this week and have been talking the last few weeks. And I just want to share with you, beginning next year, some goals and objectives that we're going to seek to accomplish. Number one, by the year 2015, we want to be sponsoring 1,000 children. Something God has put upon our heart, 1,000 children. We're going to ask you to pray, each one of you, about taking at least one child. And you'll be able to do that and sponsor them anywhere from $15 to $35 a month. But we're going to, as a church, begin to sponsor, begin to pray and ask God to put His hand upon them spiritually. But we're also going to support them physically. And so I want you to begin to pray about that. And by 2015, we want to be sponsoring 1,000. We're going to set a goal. As a matter of fact, we're going to talk about this the first two Sundays of the year. But I want you to begin to pray about that. And pray about how you might participate even in a leadership level. Number two, we're going to make it a commitment by 2015 to be volunteering 10,000 impact hours outside of the community walls. To make an impact in the community and the world that God has given us. And that does not count what we're going to do right here. Not service within the walls, but 10,000 hours outside the walls. And, and next year, again, I don't know if it's going to be 150 or 200 children. We haven't decided that. But beginning in 2010, we're going to do that. And we're going to commit to at least 2,000 hours uh, next year. I want you to begin praying about how you might be a part of that. How God might use you. And that's in addition to, to continuing planting churches and reaching people in the community. 
Now, I have a lot more I'd love to share with you, but I've gotten too excited and there's not enough time. But I just want to, I want you to do this. I want you to covenant to pray about how will I be involved. Now, God may already have you doing some things. That's great. But I want you to pray about the opportunities that are going to be before you. And there's still opportunities even today uh, here within the walls of the church on Sunday morning that we would love for you to participate in. The real truth of it is this. Is not, does God ever give me opportunities? The question is, do I embrace them when they come my way? Many times they look like problems. Many times they look like something, I don't have enough time to deal with that. I don't want to get involved with that. That's not my thing. But spiritually, are you praying and saying, God, what part do you want me to play in glorifying you and in bringing your kingdom to come? God, what place do you want me to take? God, I'm willing. And it may be something I'm not experienced in. It may be something that I have a fear of, i.e. children. It may be something that I don't really understand. But God, if you call, if you lead, I'm willing. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Use me. Can you say that prayer? Can you ask that prayer? I believe David prayed that prayer. And we see that throughout the Psalms. I believe Ben and I have prayed that prayer and was willing when the opportunity came. So let me say this. God wants to start us and He'll start you with the small things. He'll start you usually serving. And guess what? People probably won't know your name. You'll probably be a Benaniah. People won't go, oh, Johnny, you know what he's doing. Matter of fact, if that's your motivation... Yeah, just wait. Wait till you grow up a little bit. But if you're willing to say, God, I just want to make an impact. I just want to bring you glory. I just want to love you like you love me. I want my life to count. Then I want to invite you to begin to take that step. I shared with you earlier that our friend Kyle passed away this morning. And I had just gotten in from Phoenix last night. And uh, we had gotten a call while we were there that he wasn't doing well and i'll never forget going over there when we get there uh he was in bed he was non-responsive and um we just prayed and sang for a little bit and um and then i kissed him on the forehead and, and i was i was leaving i was thinking you know what i ought to just go back and just hug him for a moment and and just hold him and just just talk to him for a moment and, and i didn't do that and you know i when i first heard that this morning i really regretted that and i thought i'll, I'll do it tomorrow can I tell you this? I, but I am glad. I'm glad I didn't say, you know what? I'm tired right now. I don't have time. I've been gone for three or four days. I'll just go home. I'm so glad I didn't do that. Hey, before you go home, can we release the, the hurdle of saying, I'm tired and I don't feel like it? I don't think Jesus felt like dying on the cross. I don't think Paul felt like being beaten. I don't feel like any of the apostles ever thought, hey, you know, this would be a good day to be martyred. It's coming to the place where you say, you know what? There's something bigger than me out here. And God, if you want me to take a step, I embrace it. I'm yours. Use me. And if you want me to sweep floors, if you want me to hold babies and wipe noses and change diapers, I'll start there. But God, use me. It'll mean rearranging your schedule. It'll mean rearranging your pocketbook. 
But don't let it be said at the end of the day, these three things. Number one, I never took time to know Jesus. I never invited him in my life and asked him to forgive me my sins. That will be the greatest omission you could ever commit. Number two, don't let it be said of you when you die that you didn't use the talents and the abilities that God gave you to make an impact. And number three, that you didn't take advantage of opportunities. There's a book called If Only by Neil Rose. And he studied people who were age 70 to 90. And what he found was they were most disappointed, not by what they'd done. 86% of them said, our greatest regret is what we did not do. Not what we did. Hey, be willing to take a risk for God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together today. Thank you, Lord, for the great examples of David and Benaniah. Thank you, Lord, that though it may be small, you are calling us to be engaged in your, Lord, movement here on earth. To bring glory to you and to your name so that others might know of your goodness and your mercy and your salvation. I pray, God, that as a church, that as we reach out to those, Father, who do not have the necessities of life, who do not have fathers and mothers. God, as we reach out to the community and serve, I pray, Lord, that you might be glorified and that your name might be lifted up, that others might see the good deeds of the Father and be glorified. I pray, Lord, that this morning you would put it upon our hearts to say yes to salvation, yes to stewarding of our gifts, and yes to making the most of the opportunities that come our way for the kingdom of Christ. In your name I pray. Amen.